Well, welcome to what I consider to be the strangest day on the Christian calendar. The day that we remember Jesus was crucified to pay the penalty of our sin. The, the Son of God, the perfect, spotless Lamb. The righteous for the unrighteous. And yet we call it Good Friday. That's the tension of our morning, isn't it? It's the day we remember the true horror of the cost of sin, that the Son of God had to be sacrificed to pay the penalty of your sin. In some way, the triune God was torn in some way that we don't even comprehend, but the pain and agony of the cross is far eclipsed by the pain and agony of the spiritual cost. And yet we know the end of the story. We know what Jesus was doing. And so we're caught up in this tension of Good Friday where we have the, the somber nature of the crucifixion combined with the fact that we know what Christ is doing. Okay, so bear that tension, carry that tension with you as we look at this passage together this morning. And what we're going to be looking at specifically is that death moment of Christ. We're zeroing the whole morning in on that moment of his death. Now, it's no surprise for me to say that unless Jesus returns, we are all going to die. None of us are going to avoid death. And here's another truth. Most of us will probably die in a hospital bed with some family members around, and they will mourn, and they will grieve, but by and large, it will go by unnoticed by the world. Once upon a time, you saw or read the notices in the newspaper that said so and so had passed. Nowadays, you can look to a Facebook post, uh, and that will quickly be posted and then forgotten. That's really the reality of our moment of death. I want to contrast that with the death of Christ. Because the death of Jesus was anything but quiet. The death of Jesus was cataclysmic. It was unable to be ignored. And I'm not sure that we zero in on that moment enough to realize just how profound the death of Christ is. So I'm just going to reread the core little bit of the passage that Drew just read, and I just want you to concentrate, right? This is the moment of his death, and think about what's happening, all right? So, so cast your minds that you were there at this moment, all right? Think about this. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake, and the things that happened, 
They were terrified and said, truly this man was the son of God. Sound quiet to you? Let's pull this apart in three major events. The first thing that we notice together is that the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. Now, it's significant that it says top to bottom. Why? Because this was God's initiative. This was God's act to save us. The temple curtain was not torn from bottom to top. It was torn from top to bottom to signify that God was the one doing the tearing. Now, if you don't know this, you need to think about this. The temple curtain weighed somewhere between two and four tons. Don't think your lounge room curtain, right? It was probably about four inches thick. I just want you to picture right here and now, if there was a curtain hanging in here that weighed four ton and was four inches thick, and it started to shred from top to bottom, with no force that you could see, it just started ripping apart. You reckon you might notice that? Actually, I think that would be terrifying, wouldn't it? The sheer noise of that curtain tearing would be incredible. Where was the curtain? What did the curtain do? The curtain separated us from the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God dwelt, right? Once a year, one man, the high priest, once a year, he could go beyond the curtain to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people, to make atonement on behalf of the people, one man, once a year. And now at the moment of Christ's death, the curtain that separates the presence of God from people is torn from top to bottom. You see, at the moment of Christ's death, the curse of sin is broken. The penalty of our sin is paid. The way of grace has come, and there is no longer a barrier between God and man, because Jesus is the way. Okay, so at the death of Christ, the barrier between God and man is ripped apart. The tearing of the curtain was truly the end of religion. Religion is the striving of man to get to God. And all the religious practices that people do, all of the laws they try to keep, all of those things, religion is the striving of man to get to God. And at the death of Christ was the death of religion. The temple curtain tore, signifying it was finished because Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law, and now in Christ comes grace. The end of religion. And now we have Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. All these people all around the world, striving so desperately hard to work their way into heaven, giving money as a kind of bribe, missing the fact that the temple curtain was torn. And now the only way is through Jesus. I have a quote on my office wall. It says, your sins are forgiven. 
and your righteousness is complete by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. All right, listen to that again. Your sins are forgiven and your righteousness is complete by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what the tearing of the curtain meant, right? That's what it means. We are saved by grace and not by law, not by religion, because Jesus paid the penalty. That's the first thing we see at the death of Christ. Man, whew. The next thing we see is that the earth quaked and rocks were split. What does that mean? Sin came into the world through man's disobedience. And the whole world, the whole earth and everything in it was cursed. The sinfulness of man, but also the earth. We know of thorns and thistles, right? The curse of Adam. By the sweat of your brow, you will now battle the cursed earth. Beth and I, for the last year, have been trying to tame the 16 acres we bought out at Smith's Crossing, I've learned two dark things in my time now. One, giant's rat tail is an evil, evil thing. Oh my goodness. It clings to life like few others and this vine. I don't even know what this vine's called, but one day I'm going to wake up and it will have crushed our house with us in it. It's just unstoppable, this thing. Why? Why is it so hard? Why is it like we're just battling every evening? Because it's cursed. God said it. Sin has, con sin has taken over this earth. God cursed the earth. Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will now labor. The earth is fallen. Shut up your house and go away for five years. No one live in it for five years. Come back and it will just be pristine, won't it? No. And why won't it? Because all of creation is in bondage to decay, says our passage. Things don't grow like they should. Instead of the pure joy of God's creation, it's a war against weeds and pests and fires and floods and earthquakes, and droughts, and on and on it goes. Romans 8, 20 to 22, it's the only other passage we're looking at this morning, Romans 8, 20 to 22, it says this, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. All of creation, from man and our sinfulness which separated us from God, to the earth and everything in it is groaning from bondage to sin and note to decay. A couple of years ago, I actually remember this distinctly. 
I had the worst injury of my life. Not the most painful, not the most debilitating, and not the longest lasting. Still the worst. Because I could not move my neck and shoulder for a day because I slept funny. And that makes it the worst injury of my life. I remember when I was slightly younger, going really, really early to the beach while it was still dark in the hope of fishing in the dawn and sleeping on a car seat in an awkward position. And then the sun hitting, jumping out of the car, off you go, down there fishing, bouncing out of the car. And then a couple of years ago, I slept slightly awkward in a bed and couldn't move my neck for a day. Why is that happening? Decay. All of creation is subject to it. All of creation is feeling the effects of decay. On that day, when Jesus died, at that exact moment, a shudder rippled through creation. The earth shook and the rocks split. Why? Because creation recognized that the curse was broken. Creation knew the price was paid, that it was to be set free, made new. The earth itself cried out that Jesus had won. Drew put up here just before the triumphal entry. And if you read John's account, you would know that as the people start to worship and cry out, Hosanna, the disciples are like, hang on, maybe we should stop them singing. And Jesus says, if they didn't cry out, the stones themselves would worship, says Jesus. And here we are, the people have turned at this stage. They have crucified Jesus, but the stones are crying out. Jesus said it would happen, and here it is. At his death, when the people have turned away, creation recognizes the curse has been broken because Jesus has paid the penalty. Right? Creation is crying out the victory of Christ. Now, I fully understand it's not completely realized yet. We still see and experience the effects of the curse but the war has been won. We're simply waiting for its final redemption when Christ returns. The curse is broken because Jesus has paid the penalty. Thirdly, we read this peculiar passage about saints who had died rising and appearing to people. Now, if this is not one of the more obscure and slightly odd passages in Scripture, I don't know what is, right? So we have this. Now, I would agree with the commentators who believe that these were people who were disciples of Jesus, not the 12, obviously, but those wide-up followers of Jesus, and they had recently died. So I believe these are recent deaths like Lazarus. So Lazarus was a follower of Jesus. He'd recently died, and Jesus resurrected him. Now, the hint is that people recognized who they were. Now, if they were obscure saints from 1,500 years earlier, nobody's going to have actually known who they were, right? 
So people actually recognized that these were saints. These were followers of Jesus. So I think these were recently dead people, just like Lazarus, and suddenly they are brought to life. Now, I believe they are resurrected just like Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus did not receive the new body that Jesus gets at his resurrection. Lazarus is simply brought back to life, would have lived out his life as a testimony to the glory of Jesus, and then died. And I think these saints are the exact same. I think they are uh, saints who are brought back to life, live out their lives again, and then die. But they live out their lives as a testimony to the glory of Jesus. So I think that's what's going on in this passage. However, the key thing, of course, is what they really signify is victory over death. The curse broken, death defeated, beaten by the death of Christ, who willingly paid our debt and died in our place so that we could have life. Now we know, of course, as I said at the start, unless Jesus returns, we will all taste death. But death has lost its sting. The sting of death is the fear of the unknown, the fear of judgment. In Jesus' victory, he made the unknown known. He gave us the promise of life. He gave us the promise of paradise and the certainty of grace and the fact that we will be with him forevermore. Death has lost its sting. On a more somber note, in a way, a little while back, not too long ago, Jerome's grandfather passed away. Kaz's dad. He was 81 years of age. And he lived 81 years in rebellion against Christ. 81 years of refusing to acknowledge Christ's lordship. Two weeks before he passed, the gospel was shared to him and his response was, no, it's too late. One week before he passed, he surrendered his life to Jesus and now sits with Christ in heaven. Isn't that unfair? Seriously, a week. No, because he is saved by grace and grace alone. And guess what? I'm saved by grace and grace alone. And if you've put your faith in Christ, you are saved by grace and grace alone. None of us deserve it. And anyone who is saved is saved by the sacrifice of Christ, his death and resurrection, and that is final. So praise God. Praise God for everyone who puts their faith in Christ and receives salvation freely through the death and resurrection of Jesus. All in all, what we see at the death of Christ is the end of religion and the way of grace. We see creation itself cry out as it is freed from bondage to sin. And we see the conquering of death as Jesus wins the victory. It's Good Friday, the day we remember the death of Jesus. And it is appropriate to be somber. However, at the moment of his death, all of creation cried out that victory is won. 
We worship together this morning as those who have experienced that victory. And we live in light of what he has done in grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, the moment of your death, the righteous for the unrighteous, you paid the penalty. Lord, we see creation itself crying out. Because our debt has been paid. Lord, we pray that we don't miss the significance, the the incredible gift of Good Friday, that the righteous one gave up his life for the unrighteous. Lord, the curse that we deserve, you lifted by your death. And we simply praise you. We worship you, we thank you, we give you all the glory. Salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. We just praise you together this morning in your precious name.